Well, let us remain standing at this time and let us open God's word this morning all the way to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. Our concentration will be particularly on one verse of scripture this morning, which is chapter 1, verse 13. But we will be reading verses 1 all the way down to verse 16. People of God, this is the word of our God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, But as he who called you who is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word from 1 Peter chapter 1. Let us pray for his illumination this morning. Our great God and Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would give us attentiveness this morning to the contents of this particular passage in 1 Peter. We acknowledge it, Father, is ultimately not coming from man or man's opining about truth, but rather it is the very word of you. And we humble ourselves under it now, and we thank you for it. And we ask that you would grant us illumined minds and hearts to a proper understanding of this text. We ask that by your Holy Spirit you would accompany that word with your power so as to apply it to us for the glory of your great name and for our good. 
We pray this with confidence, depending upon your spirit this morning. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. You may be seated. Two things that are true about a fire is that a fire produces light and fire produces heat. It is said that the Puritans of old understood the Christian ministry of the word as that which could be likened to the analogy of a fire. The word of God brings light to the understanding so as to produce heat, a heart that is warmed in its affections for the living God so as to obey the living God and to walk in righteousness. It could be said that this analogy also characterizes what Peter is doing in our text this morning. For in chapter 1, verse 13, this is actually a hinging point in this first chapter where Peter is, in effect, moving from light to heat. We find several imperatives that we're going to be facing or that you do face on the other side of verse 13. But the first of which is this little phrase in our text this morning in 1 Peter 1 verse 13. Rest your hope. As we consider how this concerns this command, rest your hope, It's going to prompt us to ask three questions as we consider this verse this morning. And we'll just arrange and organize our approach to this text with these three questions. First, what is the command that we're called to do in this text? Secondly, how are we to heed this command? And then thirdly, why are we to heed this command? Well, let us take in the first place, what is the command that we're called to? Now, if you can imagine for a moment just a typical chair, and that chair has a seat that can be distinguished from the legs underneath that seat. When it comes to interpreting Scripture, it's important for us when we approach a passage of Scripture to distinguish between that which is the seat, the main subject matter, and the legs that are there to support that main subject matter. Well, one of the starting points in interpreting a scriptural passage is similar to how we would do so in an English text in that we first determine what is the main verb of the sentence. And an English sentence, as you and I know, can be a very long sentence, especially if you're reading a Puritan. But you're going to be looking for where is the the primary subject and what is the primary verb in which that subject is engaged Well, looking at verse 13, it may appear that there's multiple instructions here, multiple imperatives here in verse 13. But actually, in this verse, there is but one sole main verb. It is the seat, if you will. It's the main subject that we're dealing with, the main subject matter. 
And that is this phrase, rest your hope. It could also be translated, set your hope or fix your hope. That's the primary verb here. Well, rest your hope on what? Well, he says here, upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Rest your hope fully upon the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what Peter is directing our hearts towards is this future grace where he already has actually introduced that. If you look up in verse 5, he says you're kept by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is a subject that's very important to Peter, setting the minds of his hearers or his readers upon future grace. It's so important that if you look in verse 7, he also brings it out there where he says that it is, at the close of that, it's tested by fire, talking about faith, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter has particularly in mind here this focus upon the return of the Lord Jesus, the final close of this present age when the fullness of the age to come will be ushered in. And he's having his hearers set their minds upon the magnitude of God's grace that is manifested in that final day at the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a certain sense in which Peter would have his Christian audience not be so much pushed by their past as pulled by their future. And he's setting their orientation on their future experience of God's grace and all that God's grace has won for them through Jesus Christ. And he has his hearers be pulled by that future. I wonder if that could be said of us, that our lives are pulled with this sight of our future. All of the grace of God that awaits us in its fullness at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, this future full experience of God's grace that is on the way, he says that you're to hope in it. Now, we have considered on several occasions this word hope as it's understood in the Bible. Because a lot of times we'll use the word hope flippantly in our everyday language. Oftentimes just to mean, well, I wish. I wish this were so. But biblical hope or the, the biblical understanding and usage of the word hope is probably best put as unrealized certainty unrealized certainty. It's far from wishful thinking. In other words, there is a promise of God of something future that is certain, but it's not yet realized. It's certain, but not yet realized. Hope is having that certainty in your possession. You possess this certainty about something that is future, but it currently is unrealized. So the first command in this letter is this action that he's calling the minds and hearts of his hearers to do is to fix your hope, to set your hope, he says. 
Set your eyes upon that which is certain and sure and secure that's going to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ in all of its fullness. The full experience of God's grace. It's a command to hope. To set one's hope. To know that it's yours. To rest in it and live out of it. This time of awaiting the coming of Jesus Christ is not a time for despair, not a time for doubt in the promises of God, but a time for true hope. And we're to be diligent to set our hope on what certainly has been given to us that is yet unrealized. Well, he sees this as a Christian's personal privilege, and thankfully, Peter goes on to explain to us how we are to go about setting our hope. Now we're getting to the legs, you see. He's giving us some legs that support this main subject matter, this main imperative to fix our hope. Well, how do we heed this command? Well, what he provides to us here are two adverbial phrases. Again, the main verb is to set your hope. So an adverbial phrase is going to further define and elucidate what it looks like to do that. And I want us to take a look for a moment at these two adverbial phrases. The first one that he gives to us here in verse 13 is gird up the loins of your mind. As an adverbial phrase, it would actually read in some translations, go ahead and put it in this manner, girding up the loins of your mind. It's not a separate command or a separate main verb. It rather is supporting that main verb. And in some translations you'll even read, prepare your minds for action, which you'll understand in a moment why that makes sense. But one thing that it does kind of lose out on is the ancient imagery that's being evoked in the minds of his hearers. Because in the ancient Near East, folks would wear long tunics, tunics that would go all the way down to the ankles. And that made it very nice as you're walking along in the breezeway. But if someone was to actually engage in labor or work or better yet, battle, the tunic would get in the way. I mean, try to run from here to Jones Creek out there in a tunic. You'd probably trip up in the process. So what they would do is gird up the loins. Gird up. They would take the tunic in various ways. They sometimes would, would reach be between their legs and bundle it all together and bring it up the front side of the legs and then tuck it in in the front. Or maybe come around the sides and tie it. The idea was, as they were making the tunic into what you and I might as, as associate with shorts, it's making it so that they can move about. And it was called girding up one's loins. It allowed someone to move about freely in action. And that's the reason why it's sometimes translated, prepare your minds for action. You see the idea. That's actually landing on what this is all about without giving you all the girding up of the loins imagery. But I think the girding up of the loins imagery is helpful in getting under the skin of what he's saying here. In the end, it meant you better get ready to move. 
get ready to engage in battle. Peter may actually, and some scholars think this, that he may actually have Exodus 12 in mind here. Because Moses instructs the people before the Exodus, he tells them at Passover, gird up your loins and eat in haste. In other words, prepare and be ready for the redemption of your God because it's coming. You're soon going to be on the move. Gird up your loins. You're going across the Red Sea. You see? Perhaps Peter's borrowing that same kind of usage of get ready to move because God's redemption is near. Get ready because you're going to be engaging in battle. But in this case, it's going to be by the strength of God that you are victorious. Indeed, this is actually a very peculiar usage of the phrase because what does Peter say? He doesn't say, gird up your loins. He's not talking about their tunics here. He says, gird up the loins of your mind. That's kind of peculiar, isn't it? How are you to gird up the loins of your mind? How does one do this? Well, thankfully, he gave us a second participial phrase here that allows us to get under the skin of what he's talking about. And he uses the language, be sober. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober. If you were to put it in an adverbial way, it would be being sober, being sober. Since this sobriety is in relation to the mind, it oftentimes is translated sober-mindedness or sober mind, almost in a hyphenated way. Well, to have a sober mind is to be clear-minded. Think what Peter's saying here about the spiritual walk that you have with the Lord, this spiritual walk that entails your setting your hope, setting your hope effectively on the, on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of the experience of his grace that will come at his coming, it has everything to do with clear-mindedness. It's to be awake. It's to have spiritual alertness. Well, let's consider how Jesus himself uses this phrase. How about you turn with me over to the Gospel of Luke for a moment? Because Jesus uses the same phrase. Look at Luke 12 with me, if you have your Bible in front of you. And let us turn for a moment to Luke chapter 12. And let us look at, uh, beginning with verse 35 of Luke 12. And this is our Lord speaking. Luke chapter 12, verse 35. And you're going to see some of the same imagery coming to the surface here. He says, let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. And you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding. That when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come 
and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming in an hour you don't expect. You see, be ready. That readiness. That's the girding up of the loins of your mind. It is ready-mindedness. You know, often when we hear the word sober, we oftentimes think of sober uh, as a contrast to drunkenness, which sober-mindedness could certainly be likened to because actually Jesus does that exact thing. If you're still in Luke 12, look at verse 45. Jesus does that. He says, but if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying in his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him. So even Jesus, in using this sober-mindedness, does have this kind of oppositeness of drunkenness that's in mind. This contrast of drunkenness and alertness. Well, what do you think of when you think of drunkenness? You think of someone who is not self-controlled. It's one who is not disciplined. It's one who's not alert to what is reality and what is not reality. It's one who does not keep reality in focus. It brings delusions before a stupor. And what is a drunken stupor but a refuge of one who has no hope, which is Peter's primary subject matter? Now, while literal drunkenness may be helpful in an analogous way, we should notice that Peter is not talking about wine and alcohol in chapter 1. Though certainly there is an analogy to it. Rather, Peter is saying that we must have soberness in our reflection. Our mind must be self-controlled. It must be disciplined. Our minds must be ever upon the alert. We must always be spiritually awake and not sleeping. We must be spiritually realistic about ourselves and our weaknesses. Be realistic about our dangers. To be awake and to keep reality in focus. We're to beware about spiritual danger. Satan is no pushover. He is a schemer. And even Peter, if you remember, in this very letter, Peter goes on to liken him to a lion that is going about ready to devour. And Peter knows that we ought not to be blinded to the schemes of the evil one, but be most aware of the schemes of the evil one. Be most aware of the dangers of sin. Aware of our own weaknesses and contexts in which those weaknesses the evil one finds great windows into and open doors into our lives. We're not to be mentally intoxicated to use that language, 
with the things of the world. Far from alcohol use, the mind can be intoxicated with all kinds and sorts of things that Peter is very well aware of. And he's saying to the people, your mind must be mentally aware and awake and not intoxicated by all of the idols that are out there awaiting your mind's attention. Mentally intoxicated with something that's not God. Making that into an idol. The lusts of the flesh. Reputation and a concern of my own praise. Authority. Career. Possessions. And the list goes on and on where our minds can be mentally intoxicated with things that become idols in one's life. And possibly one of the means by which our minds can become diluted and dulled, not sharpened, but dulled to the way that the world thinks and operates in our current time is one obvious one is the medium of the television screen and the computer screen. We live in an atmosphere that is drunk on entertainment where if one were to compare the amount of time and attention that is given over to the things of God as a believer in relation to the time and attention given over to the various manifold ways of being entertained, I think it would be striking to us to see the comparison. There may not even be a comparison. That's not how we remain spiritually sharp and alert and sober. And what Peter is doing is he's in a blanket way calling God's people to give attention to this. You must be sober-minded. You must be spiritually aware and alert. Realistic. Peter uses these same words in other portions of this little letter. So, so flip back over to First Peter. Let's look at other ways that he uses sober-mindedness in this same letter. It seems to be something that's very important that Peter wants to communicate. Turn over to First Peter. And let's skip chapter 1 for a moment and just go right on over to chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4. And look with me at verse 7. He says, but the end of all things is at hand, therefore be serious, the word there is sober, and watchful in your prayers. Thus a mind that is not alert is dull, dulled to prayer. Look with me at chapter 5, verse 8. Look over at chapter 5, verse 8. He says here, be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Thus a mind that is not alert is dulled to an awareness of danger. You know, there is much to distract 
and intoxicate our minds, isn't there? As much in this world as it was in the ancient world. How much is yours and my mind distracted in a way that does not keep our minds sober-minded, awake and alert spiritually? How often do we find our own hearts and minds being very lackadaisical when it comes to the Christian life? And we're just setting ourselves up for tripping and falling. Is there anything to which we are exposing ourselves on a personal level or a family level that's dulling our minds spiritually? Are we found to be always spiritually in ready position? And I think there of the last chapter of Ephesians with all of the armor, it seems that Paul has very much in mind, you Christians are in a battle. Oh, be ever ready. Peter seems to have the same mindset here, and he uses this roaring lion. And it's in the context of his talking about Satan as a roaring lion that he says, hey, Christian, be sober-minded. You see, you must be alert spiritually. Don't be lackadaisical. Do you and I think for one moment that the evil forces of our adversary ever takes a break? He doesn't. It's always about. That's probably the difference in the lion that you look at and see in a cage and the lion of our great adversary. The lion takes a rest. No, there is danger about, and we must be found ready. We must be exercising intentionality in being alert and watchful, sober-minded. Well, we need to see that in doing so, we're girding up the loins of our mind as the Lord would have us. And, and the effect of this is an engagement in the primary command in our text, which is to set our hope. It has everything to do with that. Setting our hope on the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes again. Well, lastly, why should we heed this command that he gives to us? And I want us to camp out here for just a moment. The answer to why, of course, is found in the very first word of this verse. It is the word, therefore. You see, this is not a bare command that he is giving the Christian community. This is actually a very profound transition point in this chapter where the apostle is moving from a whole number of what we call indicatives. We visited that word a number of times. Statements of fact, statements of truth. Peter is moving from a whole lot of statements of fact or indicatives, and he's now transitioning with this word therefore into a host of imperatives, commands, instructions for the Christian. 
So whenever we get to verse 13 and he uses the word therefore, it is in reference to everything that has come before it in verses 1 through 12, which is his introduction in this letter. It's interesting. His whole introduction is just full of indicatives, statements of truth, statements of fact about the Christian, illumining the Christian to all that is theirs in Christ. You know what you call that? Light. You see, the Apostle Peter is beginning with light. He's setting forth these glorious truths about Christ's resurrection and these glorious truths of the ramifications of Christ's resurrection that has to do with the believer. He says, we have received a new citizenship in heaven. We have received a new birth in him. We have received a heavenly inheritance in him. We have received the all-sufficient power of God to keep us to the end in Him. We've received a joy full of glory in Him, even amid trial. We've received so great a salvation in Him of which the prophets wrote long ago about, into which even the angels crane their necks to look into it and understand it. All of this constitutes a living hope that anchors the soul of this pilgrim people. Oh, the light that Peter floods the minds and hearts of the people with in verses 1 to 12. But in verse 13, it's as if Peter is saying, I'm now ready to transition from light to heat. I'm ready to transition to what is produced by that light. The effects of those indicatives upon your life that should bring this affectionate obedience in our life to the God of our salvation. You know, this is an important time to maybe just have a reminder here that indicatives always precede imperatives. Indicatives always precede imperatives. Statements of fact, glorious truths about who you are in Christ precede statements of command and instruction and do. Even the Apostle Paul has the same interest in addressing the who before he gets to the do. And we find that here in Peter. Without an indicative, you have a bare imperative, a bare command. And you know what that will do to someone? It will crush them. It will crush them. Because you know what we call that, the ism that you attach to that in terms of a school of philosophical thought? It's called moralism. Moralism is imperative with no indicative. It's just bare command. Do. It's moralism. It's what results when you have an imperative with no indicative to bury it in. Now, you also don't want to get the order wrong. 
Because if you get the order wrong, it's equally as damning. Imperatives always come after indicatives and never before. It's not one doing and obeying a command that then leads to an indicative or a statement about who you are. No, it's always the other way around. It's always who you are in Christ by faith. And now on that ground, we're now going to talk about the instructions and the do's and the commands. Because if you get the order reversed, what you end up with is self-righteousism. My righteousness is going to lead to the result of my being accepted by God. We must get the order right that indicatives always precede imperatives. In fact, this is really what the Reformation corrected so well, so well in an, a religious environment that had the, in, the imperatives obeying the commands of God in order to be accepted by God, to lead up to a status that is acceptable to God. And the Reformation says, no, that's not the gospel. That's bad news, not good news. The good news is that through faith in Christ Jesus alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, I am God's and I'm his child. That's an indicative. And because I have that status and I have that privilege, I now can then move to walk in a way that is pleasing to God and obey my Father's commands joyfully. Because what does a child of God want to do? I want to bring glory and praise to the one that saved me. Lord, I want to please you in all of my ways because you've given me so great a salvation. How can I do that? The Lord says, that's why I give you the law. I've given you the law, not in order to be accepted by me, but because I've accepted you in Christ, you now are free to live in a way that pleases me. That's why I've given you commands. That's why I've given you instructions. That's where all the imperatives come in. You now can please me in this way. I'm not leaving it in some cloudy doubt of how it is that you can please me now as a child. No, I've, I've given you instructions and commands and I've given you direction in how you are to please me. Well, that's somewhat parenthetical, but I do think that we're reminded of that as we move from, from 1 to 12 into verse 13 with this big therefore. This grace you see and he accents in verses 1 to 12 has just been poured out upon you. God's grace is just poured out upon you in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the experience of the fullness of that grace, the goal of that grace is promised to you at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your eternal future has already been predefined by you and you will experience the fullness of God's grace. Grace, you see, grace always precedes hope. First, God is gracious, freely acting to save his people. And then second, man hoping fully in that grace always comes next. But I want us to know what this grace causes the Christian to hope in. Notice our text again. What does it cause us to hope in? He says, rest your hope fully upon the grace 
that's to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now for some, when you get to imperatives, you get to commands. For some, they'll say, oh, finally, finally we've gotten to some instruction here. What shall I go and do now? And Peter, of course, he's providing us all kinds of instruction imperatives here. But I want you to notice what imperative he gives you right out of the gate. The very first imperative that he gives you. It might surprise you. But in effect, Peter says, you know all that stuff I just told you about in verses 1 to 12? You know all those glorious truths, those glorious indicatives of what Christ has won for you and who you are in him? What he's prepared for you and what he's bringing to completion? You know what the first imperative I have for you, dear children of God, is set your hope on that. That's my first imperative for you. That's in that interesting. It's like, whoa, 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 just hang on there, buster. Don't run off like this has nothing to do with what I just told you. In fact, the first thing I want you to do is to look back at verses 1 to 12, and I want you to set your hope on all of that that is yours. Set your hope upon all of that. Set your mind upon it, and don't take your mind off of it. Don't take your mind off of what I said in verses 1 to 12 and now run over here. It's kind of like what we've heard on Sunday mornings in the, the adult class. It's not like you have all of this in Christ in your justification and now sanctification is something you're going to do over here that's totally different. No. No. We find that modeled here in Peter. He says, you know what the first thing I want you to do? Is I want you to look back at verses 1 and 12 and set your mind on it. And don't take your mind off of it. Because that's going to fuel you into all of the commands and all of the instructions further that I have for you. Your reason for setting your hope and resting your hope is that you have received grace. And you will enter the fullness of the effects of God's grace on that final day at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, I want you to be reminded here, if you're not that familiar with 1 Peter, I hope you are. But 1 Peter, the whole theme of this letter is pilgrimage. The whole theme of this letter is Peter talking to Christians and reminding them actually in verse 1 that you're not home. In this world, you are passing through. So he's talking to passer throughers, you and I. And notice what he's doing. He's saying, you know what? I want you to set your hope, fix your mind upon your real home, where you're headed. You're passing through. You see how helpful and pertinent what he's saying here is for a pilgrim people. Talking to Christians as who they really are. Your citizenship is not primarily here. This isn't home for you. You're just staying for a time. And you notice that he says in our text, set your hope fully. Set your whole attention as if you can't take your eyes off of it of what awaits you, the fullness of grace that awaits you. Can I give you an imagery? 
Just imagine you being a pilgrim passing through town after town and you're headed towards a destination. And the destination toward which you are walking is one massive, and I mean massive mountain that stretches from the surface of the earth to the clouds and above. And no matter where you are on this journey, you, you look up, there, that's the destination. There it is. There's the golden hill. There is, to use the Pilgrim Progress language, there's the celestial city. You see? And what Peter's saying is, you know what? Set your mind on that future glorious goal of your salvation. Don't take your eyes off it. Because you know what you're going to find? Is that as your gaze is set up on that mountain, it's going to guide you through every single turn along the way. And you won't get lost and think, oh, well, that's what I ought to be pursuing. Oh, well, that's what I ought to go after. No, there it is right in front of you. Set your mind upon it. Be sober-minded. Be awake. Be ready. Be alert. And part of that alertness is setting your mind right there, you see. And don't take it off. If you'll permit me to give you another analogy. I know there's this talk. I don't know if this is a new thing. Probably some of the millennials in the room might have to illumine us to this. But it's new to me. But I keep running into this phrase, vision board, or vision boards. I don't know if it's a trend, or maybe it's been around for decades and I've never heard of it before. But apparently the effectiveness of using a quote-unquote vision board is for an individual or for a company to put up a large bulletin board. And from what I understand, it's an actual physical board. And on that board is pinned up the aims that that business or that individual is aiming for. Who it is that I want to be like. What it is that I want to achieve. And there's something physical that's put up on that board that you look at every day that becomes a vision board where you're reminded every day, that's where I'm headed. That's the goal I'm after. That's my vision for my future. And apparently as one places on it their overall aims and personal pursuits... By keeping that vision before them constantly and consistently, it somehow, and maybe in some mysterious way, gives definition to the everyday. It gives definition and even direction to my everyday actions. It aligns one's current actions with that desired end. Not to mention it encourages one all the more toward that end. Well, Peter is, in a way, calling us spiritually to have our ultimate life vision board, if you will, to be the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully upon it. And strangely, perhaps mysteriously, it will give definition to your present. It will give direction to your present. It will give you encouragement and inspire you spiritually in the direction that God would have you. And your current actions in some way begin to align with that vision, with that end. You see, 
Don't take your eyes off of it, you see. Keep it ever before you. Let your mind be resting upon it and set upon it. Guard that hope that's yours. Guard it. Don't let something else distract you from it. Let the main thing be the main thing. Isn't that what they, the cliche? The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Gird up the loins of your mind, ready for action. Be sober-minded so that your mind is set upon and fixed upon your end, the goal of your pilgrimage, entering into the fullness of the grace of God and what he has for you in Jesus Christ. If you have not Christ, you are a wandering individual with no end. And absurdism starts to make sense where life becomes meaningless, endless, no telos. There's no purpose to it. That's where you end up. That's where you end up. It's only believing upon Christ and knowing Christ and having God as your Father that you are given a different end. You are given the purpose for which God created you and would and saved you which is to walk the pilgrim journey of faith to this end of verses 1 through 12 that Peter gives you. One author put it this way, the great concern of God in this passage of his word is that we not be moderate hopers, that we not be satisfied with half-hoping hearts, but that we engage our minds with the hope-producing truth of Scripture and that we guard our minds from the hope-diminishing causes in this world. Our Lord knows what he's doing, brothers and sisters. He knows that it is only in light of eternity, through the lens of eternity, that this corrupted first creation and the things of this world will grow strangely dim. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's a light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the eternal inheritance that you have won for us in Christ Jesus. We thank you for the living hope that we have in him. A hope that is not a hope of despair or wishful thinking, but one of unrealized certainty. That Christ Jesus is our Savior and all that he has won for us is ours. And we long to enter into the full experience of enjoying all of the riches of his grace and the riches of the salvation he has brought to us. Our Father, we ask that you would help keep our eyes upon our end and may it give definition to our present. May you help us each and every day to set our vision upon that great mountain, that great celestial city, and may it give direction and definition and guidance to us in the present, animating our very present in a way that glorifies you. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Bury it deep within our hearts and change us thereby, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.
will receive now a blessing from God to the people of God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace both now and forevermore. Amen.